All right, so whatever you're reading from, a Bible or a device, go uh, make sure you're at Isaiah 52. We're going to look at the first 12 verses. The topic there, Isaiah directs our attention to the beautiful feet of him who brings good news. The title of the message, Jesus Wants to Keep You Barefoot and Preaching. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning, your word, it, it, it wants to penetrate our heart. It wants to speak to us between the soul and the spirit in that deep place that only you can touch with your, uh, the wonders of your love, Lord. You know us fully. Uh, you know us inside and out, Lord. Uh, we uh, want to know you more. One day we will. We'll know you completely, Lord. But in the meantime, it's a kind of a dark thing. It's, it's looking into a, a mirror, but darkly, Lord. But you can reveal yourself in uh, this place, Lord, in our hearts this morning, in our word, and, and uh, so we ask that you do, and we ask it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. He who is no fool gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. January 2nd, 1956 was the day that 29-year-old Jim Elliott had planned and prayed for. He and four other missionaries would be setting up camp in the territory of a dangerous and uncivilized Ecuadorian Indian tribe known then as the Alcas. The Alcas killed strangers. Nevertheless, Jim Elliott rather had no doubt that he would tell us about Jesus. With Jim Elliott were Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and a pilot, Nate Saint. They were flown in and dropped off on an Alca beach. Saint for the and called on a loudspeaker for them to come to the beach. After four days, an Alka man and two women appeared. They shared a meal with them and urged them to return with others. January 8, 1956, two Alka women walked out of the jungle. Elliot and Fleming waited. As they closed, they heard a behind them. They turned and saw a group of Alka warriors, spears poised to throw. Elliot had a firearm, but the missionaries had vowed they would not kill an Alka who did not know Jesus to save themselves from being killed. Within seconds, the missionaries were dead. I came across a detail that was new to me. Two others had initially signed on to accompany Elliot to Ecuador. They bailed on him Wedding plans got in the way. They decided to get married and uh, deal with that rather than go with uh, the mission. Did they dodge a spear or did they miss the honor of being martyred? That's for them to take before the Lord. We, we can't know. God had a plan for them, and just because they didn't go doesn't mean that wasn't part of God's plan. But it's interesting to speculate because what we glean is that it's possible for a believer to prioritize living in the material world over spiritual things. The Apostle Paul, talking about kind of the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, says to the effect that, uh, you know, if you get married, you're going to care about the things that your wife cares about and your husband cares about. You're going to have a whole other set of things going on that uh, will hinder you in your ministry. Now, Paul didn't say you shouldn't get married, and of course, God has established marriage, and marriage is good, but that's the idea. It's, you know, it's sometimes you do things that shackle you and hold you back from doing ministry, and you say, well, I, you know, I wish I wasn't in debt, or I wish I didn't have to do this, or I wish whatever, 
uh, and, and because you've prioritized, I've prioritized material things over spiritual things. Now, in the 8th century BC, the prophet Isaiah saw 150 years into the future of God's chosen nation. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem to the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. He saw the Jews led away as captive to the city of Babylon. Isaiah also saw that they would be freed by Cyrus, the Persian, to go home. Most of them, the majority of them, did not go home. They prioritized living in the material world over spiritual things. Since we live in a spiritual Babylon, we can ask, am I prioritizing living in the material world? I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, get up and put on your beautiful garments. Number two, go out and show off your beautiful feet. First of all, in verses one through six, let's talk about beautiful garments. Now, the Bible, as you know, says all human beings are sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. To illustrate, we're told that our clothing is like filthy rags. Dressed in filthy rags, we cannot be admitted into heaven. It's way beyond no shoes, no shirt, no service, right? I mean, God, you just can't get into heaven unless you are perfect, represented by this white robe. It's called the robe of righteousness. Jesus is the only distributor who has this robe. You ever go looking for something around Christmas time, a toy? There was, Arnold did that one movie, I forget what it was, they were looking for some kind of space toy and, and stuff, and, and people kill over stuff like that, you know? But uh, in this case, Jesus is the only one, the only place where you can find this robe, and he gives it to you freely when you believe what he did for you on the cross. You believe God, and Jesus exchanges clothes with you. The Lord takes away your filthy garments. The Lord gives you his robe of righteousness. It's a one-size-fits-all garment given to whosoever in the human race believes God. Our chapter begins with beautiful garments. Let's take a look in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. It is crucial that we first read these verses and all of Isaiah and all of the Old Testament as it pertains to its original audience. It is written to the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah. This chapter invites them to come home after Babylon. The Lord depicts the city of Jerusalem as a woman who puts on her Sabbath day best. We encounter this kind of illustration a few times in the Bible. At first, it's confusing, and uh, I'm one of the ones who makes things more complicated than they need to be. You always think, oh, this has to be super complicated. I wonder what's really being said. But um, as an illustration, we encounter this in the Bible several times. The most prominent is at the end of the Revelation where we read, one of the seven angels said to the apostle John, Come, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, sacrificing lambs anticipated the coming of a savior who would be the final sacrifice to forgive sin. And then John goes on, he says, And the angel carried John away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed him the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so he says, I'm going to show you the lamb's wife, and then John sees the new Jerusalem. 
The bride is the resurrected and rewarded church. She's identified with the city, and that's not wrong. This trope is used humorously in the MCU by Captain America when he calls Spider-Man Queens, which is a borough of New York. And so people do this sometimes, hey, New York, you know, or hey, Queens. Well, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, he's not Queens, but because he comes from there and because he's associated with that, et cetera, we identify that. And so the New Jerusalem isn't a, the bride of Jesus Christ. It's a city, but it's our city. And the bride lives there, and when you see one, you think of the other. The uncircumcised and the unclean refer to unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles, respectively. Are there in 2024 unbelievers in Jerusalem going in and coming out? Sure. And that means Isaiah is talking about the far future, the kingdom of God on earth, where this will be regulated. Shake yourself, verse 2, from your dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I like this. Arise, sit down. Well, which is it? Well, the, they were to arise in Babylon and leave and then sit down in Jerusalem. There's no doubt all the Jews should have left. That was God's desire. Bonds of your neck are those shackles you see on ancient prisoners as they're being led about. That was how the Jews were led into Babylon, but not how they would be let out. They would come out free with the blessing of King Cyrus. Verse 3, For thus says the Lord, You have sold yourself for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Slaves obviously were a commodity. They were bought and sold or traded in the slave market. The Jews were conquered. They had been conquered, and yes, they were slaves, but they hadn't been sold. They could leave once King Cyrus of Persia gave them their freedom because there was no slave price to pay. And so the way that they were captured and all, you know, and put into slavery, it wasn't like the Jewish slavery where they made themselves indentured servants to pay off a debt. And so God was saying, hey, as soon as, as, soon as Babylon is out of the way, you guys can go home. There's no more for you to do, no price to pay. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes certain people as, he says, having been taken captive by the devil to do his will. This is not demon possession. It is not somebody, you know, possessed and, and having to do things that he doesn't or she doesn't want to do. This is more of an influence uh, to do the Lord's will. Now, there are Bible commentators who say he is talking about believers, not unbelievers, but I use this a lot to describe the irrational behavior of unbelievers. For example, some of the things that are going on in our country and around the world right now, they're really not just political issues. We make them political issues, but they're not. They are matters of common sense that any and every rational human being ought to agree on. Yet, so often people today are so irrational and so illogical that it leaves us scratching our head. Every time I see a biological man compete in a sporting event against a biological woman, that is just insane. And, and I don't care your sexual orientation, that is just wrong. And you see that it's wrong because of the result. It isn't competitive, not at all. 
Men, you know, sadly, got, ladies, they, they really can't outdo you physically in most things. Uh, notwithstanding all the television shows where 80-pound women beat up, you know, 250-pound weightlifters. They could shoot him, I can understand that, but beating him, that's different. And so, I just, so, so much of that, you know, and I, you know, every now and then we lock in, we start watching some news or stuff, and people are arguing, how does this happen, and what's going on over here? And then you sit and you think, no, 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 these people are all acting irrationally. There's no rationale to this. This is the result of some council of demons and principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness getting together and saying, hey, what can we do now? Well, you know, we did all this, how about this? Hey, I bet they would go for this. We'll do this whole thing and men will start competing against women. Nah, come on, even they're not that stupid. Oh yeah, watch it, you know. It's a, and, and it is, it's, it's call it demonic. Uh, and it's not that people are, are possessed, it's just that they're, for some reason they can't think straight. Okay, so um, that's what's happening in our society right now. Verse four, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Wow, that's a 24-word summary of 2,000 years of Jewish history. They're in, they're in Egypt, and all of a sudden we're talking about the Assyrians who recently, in the time of Isaiah, had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a highlight of the historic persecution and anti-Semitism against God's beloved nation. It's been going on from the beginning. And it will continue until the end. Verse 5, now therefore what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. When you read your Bible, it seems as though the Jews are in a constant state of rebellion and failure. God is over and over again forced to discipline them. The other nations of the world look upon this. They take advantage of the Jews and they blaspheme the Lord. All that is going to end one day. And so we look at the world, you know, people look at the world and they say, oh, this is crazy, you, you, you know, what kind of God allows this? Or where's the promise of his coming? Sometimes, people do come up to me occasionally, I say, you know, you've been saying, ready or not, Jesus is coming for the last 40 years. So? What part of 40, what part of 1,000 is 40, right? Because Jesus said 1,000 years is as one day, and one day is as 1,000 years. Now, that's not how Jesus counts. If you're doing hide-and-go-seek with Jesus, you don't count by thousands, you know, it's not... He's just saying, hey, it's a long time. It, it, you know, the Lord is the Lord. He, you know, whether you want to say he's outside of time, or I, I don't understand time at all, not even you know, how to keep time, let alone you know, whether time stands still or that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, the thing with God is he, you know, he's outside of time, I would think. And I'm just talking now because I forgot what I was going to say originally. So <laughs> it'll come to me later. It's not senility. I mean, it's just, it's that this, the Holy Spirit, I blame him. Well, you know, I'm talking about one thing and I, oh, you know, you want me to say that? Sure. And then pretty soon I don't know what I was talking about, you know. So. Anyway, the Jews, you know, treated that way. Uh, and the Lord says, hey, I, I put up with that because of my love for you. 
hey, parent, right? I mean, I don't know if your kid ever did anything that embarrassed you. Probably not, I would guess. <laughs> but no, that's true, right? I mean, you get it. And, and so God says, you know what? My kids have done a ton of stuff to embarrass me in terms of, you know, I, the other nations think you guys are really lame. But, you know, I love you. And I've made some promises to you that I, I can't and wouldn't want to renege on. I knew what I was doing when I promised you. And we're going to get through this. And uh, those mocking unbelievers, they'll have plenty of chance to come to me and know me and have their sins forgiven. But in the end, you will know that I am and they won't. And so the Lord he has a, an ability to look beyond things that, that would kill us and knock us down and keep us from moving forward. The last book of the Bible in its closing chapters describes a farther future. Babylon will be a city again. God will destroy her again and again save his people. James Bond walks out of the ocean. He removes his scuba gear and is perfectly clothed in a tuxedo complete with lapel flower. That's, that's got to be that to me, that is, if somebody said, well, who's James Bond? What's that all about? Just watch this. I'm leaving now. I'm going to go buy lunch. You just watch this over and over again. But yeah, that, it's interesting. Believers in Jesus, we have additional wardrobes that we can put over the robe. Think of the robe as a undergarment. And one of them is the armor of God, right? We're told to put on the armor of God, and it's described for us in Ephesians chapter 6. We're told to put it on because we're in a war against malevolent creatures, right? You don't need to wear gear and look like, you know, these guys, you know, total respect for you guys that have served, and you, know, you have a 3,000-pound backpack, you know, and I couldn't, I'm sure I couldn't do that. Uh, and so, you know, and they say, hey, and it's like Mary Poppins' bag, you know. So they hey, give me the tank out of the bag. We do, oh yeah, here, you know. I mean, it's just so heavy and so much equipment and all, and stuff. And and, and so, uh, you know, that's what it means to be a Christian. You have these other wardrobes, and one is a uh, a fight or wardrobe, a, a warfare. Now, in World War II, Allied forces invaded Normandy, France, to establish a beachhead and. The victory there essentially uh, turned the tide of the war towards the Allies. It was effectively the end of the war. We must not allow Satan to have a beachhead. We can't have him dig into our lives or into the church or whatever. You know those bunkers they set up, you know, the little tiny slit windows? <laughs> they just mow you down as you're coming. We, we can't let the devil have a beachhead. Now, there seems to be three lifestyles believers adopt on our journey to heaven. One is that we think of our time on earth with Jesus as like living on a luxury liner with the church. You know, we're, we're on the, the good ship Jesus or something, and we never get close to the beach because our life is about comfort. And so we just hang out on this big boat. We keep adding to the boat, you know, remodeling the boat, getting new engines for the boat, whatever. And so because we're, we're just hanging out there. And this is, I'm not here to put anybody down, obviously. I mean, we all think this way sometimes, but this is where some churches get into like arguments and splits over carpet versus tile. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been in churches like this. Carpet versus tile. You see, we compromise, we have carpet and tile. Simple. Simple. 
but uh, anyway, you know, and, and again, I'm wondering what I'm talking about, but um, <laughs> so, you know, so the Christian life to, to some people is like a luxury cruise where you just kind of move forward. You talk about the Lord. I mean, you're not, you know, you, you don't deny the Lord, but it's just, hey, this is, you know, we're in the United States and this is how Christianity works. You can disembark and get into a landing craft. You'll take heavy fire. The Higgins boat amphibious landing craft was typically constructed from plywood. I was, I don't know how old I was. I was a you know, young kid when I found, my dad served in the Pacific Theater in the Navy, which I understand is a division of the Marine Corps. But anyway, <laughs> I always say that. And then my tires get slit. But uh, <laughs> so he's in the Pacific and I've got a, you know, my family always lied to me, so I don't know if it's actually his PT boat, but in my office I have a, a picture of a PT boat. And uh, man, wonder, you know, 80 feet long, fast attack craft, you know, with torpedoes and a machine gun and all that. I, I, I don't know how old I was. I was probably a teenager when I realized it was made of plywood. Do you know how easy some of these rounds would go through plywood? I mean, so it's a very serious thing to get into one of these landing craft. Uh, if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, you're less like by the end of that first scene, your jaws dropped and you know, some of those landing craft landed and everybody was dead inside already. And so it's a step once you get out of the boat and into some warfare. You can storm the beach, wearied, wounded, wondering. We press on that we may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has laid hold of us. And so when we envision the Christian life, it's not the luxury cruise, it's, it's the beachhead. And, and sometimes we're hunkered down, other times we're running to get to the next spot, but always we're doing so in the victory of the cross, uh, in our righteousness given to us by the Lord, uh, hopefully bringing others with us. Go out and show off your beautiful feet. In 2015, an exhibition of ancient clay tablets, I'm quoting, discovered in modern-day Iraq, shed light on the daily life of Jews exiled to Babylon. The exhibition featured more than 100 cuneiform tablets, each no bigger than your palm, that detailed transactions and contracts between Judeans driven from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar around 600 BC. The Jews traded, they ran businesses, they helped the administration of Babylon. One archeologist said they were free to go about their lives, they weren't slaves. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a brutal ruler in that respect. He knew he needed the Judeans to help revive the struggling Babylonian economy. So they were taken captive, no doubt. They didn't want to go to Babylon. But once there, we know they were there at least 70 years because that was what Daniel said and what Jeremiah realized, uh, or what Jeremiah said and what Daniel realized. Um, and so, uh, you know, they had businesses, awning companies, fast food places, kosher, you know, that kind of thing. But um, so let's say you're in Babylon, you're Jewish, you're a successful businessman with a comfortable life. Your kids are happy. Your son plays football for the Babylon Bees. The, your daughter spends summer interning at the Hanging Gardens. All of a sudden, you can go home. But wait a minute, you are home. Only a handful of Jews who had seen the temple would survive that long. So figure, 
Figure, you know, you got to be 12, 13 years old to really remember anything, right? Unless, well, maybe it's just me. I, you know, every now and then somebody will say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. But, I, you know, I don't remember anything before I was 12, pretty much. And, uh, but let's, as an arbitrary number, 12. So then you're in captivity for 70 years, right? And so uh, the people who had seen the temple before it was destroyed and had lived in Jerusalem and all, uh, they were in their late 70s or early 80s or 90s, or they were dead. And so there was a group that, you know, could remember the temple, and they, one of the prophets mentions that they started to weep when they saw what a lame temple these guys were building compared to Solomon's temple. And there were a few people like that, but for the most part, no Jew in captivity had ever seen the temple or lived in Jerusalem. Babylon was their life for 70 years. And so, um, you know, why go home when you're home? And then you'd be going home to ruins, to a city that hadn't been lived in for 70 years with no walls to protect it and no temple to worship in. There were no incentives for moving there. Remember when I was a kid, I, we, television was big, obviously, in our house. We watched TV all the time, night and day, day and night, night and day, until the Indian head came on at the end. Remember that? Who remembers the Indian head? And, you know, the rest of you, I'm not being prejudiced. An Indian head used to come on, and then it was the end of the broadcast day. And there's this weird picture was on there and scared you to death, you know, and everything. But um, this is the fourth time I've forgotten where I'm going now. But anyway, you can go home, but th this is your home. And, and there's no incentive. Oh, I know. They used to, Mojave City. You ever heard of Mojave City, right? It's down there in Mojave. And they were selling land in Mojave City all the time. It was one of the big ads. You know, for a dollar, you have 3,000 acres. And, and you think, well, how come we don't? I asked my dad one time, I said, how come we don't go buy money, uh, you know, land in Mojave City? I don't know what he said, but. <laughs> You'd be going home, and materially speaking, it was foolish. You'd probably be leaving a successful business, uprooting your children, to take a long and arduous journey to get back to a place that was destroyed that you had no knowledge of. Just the idea that God wanted you to go and, and, and that he was there and that he had a plan, that's what, the, that's what the incentive was. That's what the push was. But otherwise, you'd have to be stupid or spiritual. You might, and by might I mean you will, someday face a huge life-changing spiritual decision. Maybe more than one. You'll face many less drastic but just as important spiritual decisions. When you do, it's more than okay to be a faithful fool for Jesus. Choose the option that represents storming the beaches. And so, you know, there's millions of different scenarios, but the bottom line is, okay, this decision I need to make or this direction I think about going to whoever, is it more like staying on a luxury liner or is it more like being on the beach where I'm in the battle? And, um, you know, let the Lord lead. That's why the example I give a lot of times is, is, you know, there's a kind of a mentality. If you get offered a promotion or, you know, to advance somehow, there's a mentality that you have to do that. And in fact, there's places where if you don't do that, they say, well, then if you're not going to advance, we're going to fire you. And so, you know, that's fine. That's the world wanting you to get ahead and have a better resume. 
Um, you know, nobody wants to say, oh, this is one of our best employees. Uh, he refuses to be promoted. <laughs> well, but, you know, uh, why? Why might you want to? Well, I want to have my weekends free. I want to be with my kids. I want to go to church. I want to this. I want to that. You know, because so, the world, don't be a, don't assume that everything's groovy out there. It's not. The world's trying to suck you into a vortex and, and just destroy you. And, and so, um, you know, be a fool for Jesus. The last three verses of this chapter belong with chapter 53. They're the Lord's excited, enthusiastic anticipation of the return of Jews to Jerusalem once Cyrus tells them they are free to go. And so let's look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now the watchmen of verse 8 suddenly see heralds running in the mountains spreading good news as they go. The good news is said to be salvation, but it's also just the return of the Jews. They, they, you know, they were anticipating looking out and seeing from a distance now these multitudes and multitudes of Jews returning to their home. The Apostle Paul borrows this verse to describe believers heralding the gospel in the church age in which we live. That's in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. The gospel message includes the understanding that Jesus has made peace between us and God. We are at enmity with God. We are the enemies of God. Jesus makes peace by the cross. Now, for a run like this, unless you have hobbit feet, you'd better be wearing some kicks. And yet, they're depicted as running barefoot. Why go barefoot? Well, first of all, some fit Swede I found in my research wrote on his blog, in the last 12 months, I have worn nothing but barefoot shoes or no shoes at all. I think, does anybody know what barefoot shoes are? I think there's some kind of shoe that doesn't really fit you properly. It just kind of flaps over your foot or something like that. So you're effectively walking as if you were barefoot. No arch support, no nothing like that. I've got my Dr. Scholes, you know, in here and stuff. No. Before that, he says, I spent another 12 months in mostly barefoot shoes when working out, running, or going on walks. I'm not exaggerating when I say it changed my life. Research it for yourself. For health and fitness, we ought to go barefoot. There's a podcast that uh, Gino listens to. It's called Freakonomics. Anybody listen to Freakonomics? It's a famous podcast. And it takes on all different topics. And they have a whole podcast on going barefoot and how it is a more natural, obviously more natural, but it, you know, that it's a healthier way of living. My speculation on the barefoot messenger service is this. I think I'm right in saying that the Jewish priests ministered in the temple barefoot. We're not actually told that directly, but we assume it's true because there is no description of footwear. There's a description of all the things the high priest and the priests wear, but there's no footwear described. My speculation on that is that it communicates a return to the temple and temple worship. Barefoot priests had not been able to perform their tasks in the temple for over 70 years. When they returned to Jerusalem, they actually built the temple before the walls because they wanted to get back to worship. Worship was going to be what saved them, not the walls. So, you know, you and I would think, hey, we got to get these walls built right now so that we can build our temple. 
And God, through the leadership, says, not, you know, it sounds foolish, but you need to get the temple built first so that the walls will have a, my protection. And so that's what they did. Um, and so they did that, and uh, it allowed the priests to get back into their ministry of offering sacrifice and all, uh, and they were barefoot, it seems, when that happened. So why am I not preaching barefoot? There's a lot of reasons, but mostly because my feet are ugly. But even more so, why does the worship team have shoes on for the most part? Well, answer these two questions for me. As a believer, is your body permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit? Yes, Pastor Gene. As a believer, is worship an event or is it your lifestyle? It's my lifestyle. Since you are the temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit and since you know, worship is your lifestyle, it follows you ought to go barefoot all the time. And so people say, oh, we came into the house of the Lord. This isn't the house of the Lord. This is a building that has arched ceilings and carpet and tile. Uh, you know, it's, it's where we meet as a family. It's a, it's a bigger house. We can't all meet in my house. We can't meet in most of your houses. Uh, in fact, I'd wager to say in Calvary Chapel, we can't meet in, there's no house big enough for all of us to meet. So we, we bought a house so that we could all get together and be together. Uh, and so, but the idea is that if you're, you're going to take, a lot of times, you know, believers get into one thing and not the other. And hey, if you're going to get into this and say, I, I have to be barefoot to worship the Lord, then you're going to have to be barefoot all the time. And, and because that's the way it really communicates what's going on. And so verse eight, your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices, they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The only commentary here is to note God's joy. You and I can bring joy to God. Now, we're always quick to point out the truth that God doesn't need us. I mean, you know, we can't go around and say, well, God needs us. Well, no, then he wouldn't be God, right? He's self-sufficient. Uh, and self-governing, he's omniscient, and omnipotent. he's all those things. And so he doesn't, you know, he, he wasn't in heaven, he says, you know, I, I'm so lonely. Me and the Father, you know, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, you know, it's just the three of us, come on, you know, let's make somebody. I mean, it wasn't that. And so God's not lonely, he doesn't need us, but that doesn't cancel out the real fact that he gets joy from us. That's what this is all about. God derives joy from you and I the way a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather derives joy from their grandchildren. Because they're obedient all the time, because they do everything right, because they're respectful. That'd be nice. No, it's just because of you know, who you are and who they are. And it's, it's wonderful. God enjoys us. He didn't create us just out of boredom. We're made in his image. We are meant to be his greatest and most beloved creation. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Maybe you've seen The Ghost in the Darkness. It's a film, terrifying, but the true story of two lions in Kenya, Africa, called the Savo Maneaters. In one scene, a native, Mahina, 
thinks he has killed the lion. He hasn't killed the lion that's doing the damage, and later on they find out that there's two lions. True story. There's a museum to this in somewhere in the United States where they have the animals stuffed. Uh, anyway, in one scene, he thinks he's killed it, and so he looks at Val Kilmer, who's the star of the movie, and he raises up his bloody arms, you know, like, I killed the lion. Yeah, a few minutes later, he's eaten. You know that's coming, right? You think, hey, <laughs> guys, he's dead. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's what this thing is here, is, you know, is, is the Lord says, I'm going to lift up my holy arms, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I mean, think of the Battle of Armageddon, for example, where it says there's blood up to the bridle of the horses. And so the Lord is victorious. He is the lion. Depart, depart, get out of there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Get up, get out, you won't need anything. So don't be like your ancestors in the exodus from Egypt and take any spoil. March properly with the implements from the temple that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. Don't hurry in fear, enjoy the walk. God will guide and protect. God says, I have your six. Now, I used to think it was probably okay for some or even the majority of the Jews to remain in Babylon. But that's really just wrong. God told them all to depart and get to Jerusalem. The figure historians have arrived at is 80%. 80% of the Jews in Babylon remained in Babylon. 80%, wow. Read all about it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Without Jerusalem and the temple, many prophecies about the coming of the Messiah could not have been fulfilled by Jesus hundreds of years later. There had to be a temple. There had to be, uh, you know, a city of Jerusalem in order for those many, many prophecies to come true. And so God worked through his providence to release the Jews and to have them rebuild that temple. We're now set up to examine ourselves. Am I on a luxury cruise? Am I motoring to join the fight? Am I on the beach, sometimes running, sometimes crawling, but always advancing? Were the missionaries of Operation Ecuador fools? Absolutely. I mean, Jim Elliott's his beautiful quote, we are, they are not fools. But he said, in one sense, they were fools. They were fools for the Lord. We aren't in Ecuador, but the mission is the same. We come together as the church to be built up in our faith in order to go out and do the work of the ministry the work of the ministry is the great commission to each of us to go into the whole world and wherever we find ourselves to talk about the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We should be willing to be fools in Operation Hanford or Lemoore or NAS Lemoore or Corcoran or Armona or Grangeville or Avenal or Stratford and, yes, Riverdale. In Operation My Home, My Workplace, My School, I mean, you know, it's just... That's the idea is that, you know, hey, guys, we're, on, we're in Operation Ecuador. We're going to plan and, and prepare and pray, and we're going to go down, and we're going to fly into the jungle, and we're, this is what we're going to do. And in that same way, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to my place of work tomorrow. I'm going to go to home this afternoon, or I'm going to see my relatives, or this is going to happen, or that, and, and I'm just going to, you know, 
pray and prepare so that I can share something with them in a very natural way about the Lord. And so this is what we're all about. We come to church for a lot of different reasons. But the Bible says the purpose of our, one of the purposes, a big purpose of our coming together is for all of us to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Now, there's ministry to do in the church. There's different you know, positions and in order to get the thing running smoothly, just like in your household or whatever. But the ministry really is sharing Christ with the world. And so we come together as the church to be built up in our most holy faith and learn God's word and fellowship with people so we can go out and make an effect in our world. And, and that's what we're about. And so whether we're Jim Elliott and crew going down to the Aka Indians and risking our lives, or whether it's going to work tomorrow and risking your life in a different way, um, that's what we're about. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, and I'll stop here. She said, I have one desire now, to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. Let's pray.